the past few times I've needed help, I like go through, well, I've already asked that person for money and I've already asked that person. And I definitely don't want to ask this person again because they helped me so much the last time. And you're thinking like, who else can I ask (laughs) that I'm close enough with to be that vulnerable? This is The Double Shift, the show that challenges the status quo of motherhood in America. I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. And I'm your co-host, Angela Garbez. So, Angela, as we air this, it's been almost exactly one year since the COVID shutdown started. Can you, can you believe this? Can you believe I mean, we're here? <laughs> I have to believe it because this is my life. Yeah. This is how I'm living. So how are you processing this reality? You know, it's a weird, almost like a, I don't want to say anniversary, but you know, that like one year mark causes you to reflect. Yep. And I've been thinking about the different chapters of it. Yep. You know, there's like been a cumulative toll, right? And there's cumulative numbers to all of that. But I've, I've been kind of like dividing it in my mind because it's almost too much to think about. In one chunk. Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes it feels like this past year has just been defined, at least for me, by just a series of obliteratingly bad statistics. Like, over 500,000 Americans have died of COVID, like a number I could never have imagined a year ago. Mm -hmm. And over 2 million women have been forced out of the workforce, and a majority of them are mothers. Yeah. You know, moms, especially moms of color, have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. And also single moms and low-wage workers in female-dominated industries like retail, hospitality, and care work. Yep. Really, women with the least protections and the least financial cushion have really been the hardest hit. And I think sometimes we as a society have gotten lost in these huge statistics. Like, we're just sort of numbed and overwhelmed by them. Totally. But I just keep thinking about over and over is that every single one of those statistics is made up of millions of really important stories. Yeah, I think that's so important to remember. You know, when you hear numbers like 2.1 million women— it's kind of like they're they're anonymous, right? It feels really anonymous. Yeah. And um, I sometimes find myself thinking, like, who are these women? Like, what are their lives like? What do they look like? And so today, we want to tell you one of those stories. This is part one of a series on the true cost of the pandemic for mothers, which is a partnership between The Guardian, The Double Shift, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. And just FYI, Catherine did the interviews with the subjects of this series, so that's why you'll only hear her asking the questions. And the voice you heard at the beginning of the show, well, we'll let her introduce herself. My name is Jenna Mason. I'm 39 years old. I live in Oxford, Mississippi with my two children. Uh, My son is 13 and my daughter is 10. And I'm a freelance writer and digital editor. So... Jen is actually a longtime listener of The Double Shift and has reached out to us a couple times in the past year with her thoughts on episodes and her own story ideas. And like so many gig workers, Jen has spent the last few years piecing together different jobs and income to make ends meet. In 2019, she was working as a writer and a digital editor for a nonprofit, doing some freelance writing, and also waiting tables in Oxford, which is home to the University of Mississippi. That July, Jenna slipped on a crosswalk and broke her kneecap. 
She didn't and still doesn't have health insurance, and so she couldn't wait tables again until the end of the year as her injury healed. So, when 2020 rolled around, Jenna was hustling, working multiple restaurant gigs to try to make up for that lost income and pay for those medical bills. At the start of the year, though, she was getting less hours at the nonprofit. So what she planned to do was get into a more stable financial situation by working more at the restaurants and writing and pitching stories in her free time. And then, one year ago, March 2020, well, you know what happened. Good afternoon. I'm Craig Ford. I am coming to you from Oxford, one of the many communities across our state affected by the coronavirus pandemic. The state health department put out the new numbers this morning. 13 new cases confirmed since yesterday. The city of Oxford starting this morning implementing a 15-day ban on eating in restaurant and bar dining rooms in hopes of containing the coronavirus from spreading. This just one of many things that show it's an unusual time to be in Oxford. The timing was really terrible for our town because it's a college town. And spring is like when you finally start making money. You've made it through winter. Baseball season's about to start. And then, you know, you have Mother's Day, college graduation, Easter, all of these big money makers. And our first home baseball series was going to be against LSU, and we were doing really, really well. And they, when they canceled that series, everybody was like, oh no, <laughs> we are screwed. <laughs> you know? The restaurants where Jenna was working were totally closed, and a huge chunk of her income vanished overnight. Before the pandemic hit, Jenna was expecting to make about $32,000 in 2020, before taxes and from all of her gigs put together. Of course, that math changed instantaneously. In the spring, she spent what little savings she had, and that first government stimulus check helped a lot. Jenna applied for unemployment from the state due to the loss of her restaurant work. That gave her only $60 a week. And she ended up getting about four weeks' worth of the federal unemployment of $600 a week before she went back to picking up restaurant shifts. But between her two restaurant jobs, she still wasn't making ends meet. One was doing curbside pickup only, and the other opened at just 25% capacity. And it was really stressful to be working in a restaurant during a pandemic. Yep. <laughs> restaurant workers in town knew each other well and would meet up after work to commiserate and often drink away the stress. I think we were all terrified, <laughs> you know. Um, we were interacting with so many people every day and just, like, praying that no one in our restaurant caught COVID because uh, several places opened up for, like, two weeks and then had to close right back down. It was, especially at the beginning, very frustrating because our clientele didn't always perceive the same danger that we did. They were excited to be back out, but they they were not necessarily careful. There was a lot of reminding people every time they stood up, they needed to put on a mask and, you know, they'd roll their eyes or grumble about how our mayor was taking everything overboard. But I, I think there was just a lot of stress and a lot of fear. Um, I saw a lot of people start drinking a lot more than they used to to the point where with a couple of folks, it really scared me. We um, eventually did have a sort of 
unplanned intervention with one friend because we, I mean, he was just drinking himself to death, you know, and so it was really hard to watch everybody going through this. Well, what was your relationship like to drinking at that time? Because you were also dealing with a lot of stress. Yeah, I definitely increased by a good bit the amount of drinking that I was doing. I would work day shift at one restaurant and then have a two-hour gap and just, you know, go have a beer and a shot in between before I went to my next job, which is kind of is kind of standard anyway, but instead of one shot, it would be two. Or, you know, when, you know, the restaurants were closing very early. And so a lot of us would end up drinking more because we were off earlier. And I just got to where I was drinking a lot more often and a lot more at the times that I drank. Jenna says the drinking made her depression and anxiety a lot worse. She'd been taking medication for depression for years, but not earning enough money and being worried about catching COVID at work made it much harder to cope. All the students coming back to town and the university reopening just really shot my anxiety through the roof. Um, I had gotten really accustomed to managing depression, (laughs) but anxiety had never really taken the forefront. And so I just every day almost, it felt like I was waking up in a panic attack and I'd have to be at work in two hours. So I'm trying to calm myself down. And it was just all very foggy. Like there's so much of it that I feel like I don't even remember how (laughs) I got through it, but it affected my work a lot. You know, I was slower and and forgetful in a way that doesn't work well in a restaurant and was trying to work a lot of hours, which was still kind of messing with my knee. Mm. And then the drinking on top of that was not helping anything be any clearer. And so I, I was cutting way back on the drinking, I would say by September, um, but the anxiety just wasn't giving way. And for a while, um, I had been off medication because I I couldn't afford to go to the doctor to get that and um, just couldn't afford it. And I couldn't really afford the medicine either. So I was just kind of winging it, trying to survive every day. And um, I had to leave work on two occasions because I was having a panic attack. I sat through half a shift in the dark in a manager's office one time because I couldn't stop shaking. It was... It's very difficult. And it was, even though I know and I tell myself mental health is a real problem, it was so embarrassing to be the person that couldn't handle all of this, you know? And so I think it was the beginning of October, I got let go from my day job at, mm. at the restaurant. I was, I was working lunches. And then in early November, was let go from the restaurant I was working at at night. And so it was back to just, just freelance again there. And I applied again for unemployment. And it took a long time for them to process. And then they finally got back to me saying they thought that I had falsified information because I said that I left these restaurants for health reasons. Hmm. 
And I guess by their determination, mental health doesn't count as health, (laughs) as a health reason. So that was, that was a blow, you know, even though it was just $60 a week, like I needed that $60. Jenna's financial problems continued to compound. And one of the things Jenna emailed me that has stuck with me is she wrote, it's really expensive to be broke. The electric company here in Oxford will hang a a neon yellow hang tag on your door to let you know your electricity is about to be disconnected. And um, you have to pay for that too. It's a $25 fee for them to hang that tag on top of, you know, the late fees that you owe. Or if they do disconnect you, it's, you know, another $80 on top of everything to reconnect. Um, So that has, I've thrown away, I would estimate close to $1,000 in 2020 just on, on fees like that. What is the biggest thing that you've had to cut back on in terms of spending? over the last year? Hmm. Well, we were already on a pretty tight budget. I would say the little uh, spontaneous things that I would do with my kids, like, hey, let's go get ice cream tonight. Or why don't we go, you know, to the arcade or, or something like that, where now I have said more times than I can even imagine to my kids the one thing I never wanted to say, which is we can't afford that. <laughs> we can't afford that right now. It's just those little little special things that usually also cost a little bit of money. Even just like, oh, we'll watch a movie on Netflix. It's going to cost $5. I don't have that right. in my bank account right now. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. yeah. So what has been the impact on your self-esteem during this time? Um, very negative. <laughs> it's, um, it's been very, very difficult th- because this is the first time in my life I have felt like I am not keeping it together. And I, and I, you know, borrowed money from friends and family several times to pay the bills and which is not sustainable, you know, if I'm going to be making the same amount of money next month that I made this month and I'm having to borrow money to pay my bills this month, <laughs> you know, having to go to people and, and ask for help, every, everybody that was able to help that I asked was more than happy to, you know, they're like, this isn't your fault. Everybody's going through it right now. Like things will get better. But it was it was still very hard to be that person that needed so much from other people. It was feeling like I'm looking in the mirror at someone that is no longer self-sufficient and and not seeing a way out of it. And just feeling like maybe I fooled myself my whole life into thinking I was self-sufficient, but when it, the rubber hit the road, I'm not, you know? We'll be right back. So one of my personal obsessions that I think so many families should consider is co-housing. 
Our episode, Don't Call Me Mom, Call Me Ted, was set in a co-housing community, and we've also talked about it in other episodes. With its common spaces and strong community, it offers kids freedom and independence to roam and connect with nature that is honestly hard to find these days, all with loving neighbors invested in your kids' lives. Right now, there's an opportunity to actually get in on a great community that's about to start construction. Co-housing ABQ owns four acres of land along the beautiful Rio Grande, just minutes from downtown Albuquerque. The community already has 12 kids and many aunties and grandparents, and they've supported one another through COVID and before, creating a culture of trust, fun, and care. All they need to be complete is you. Go to cohousingabq.org slash the double shift to check out their website and sign up for an info session. Honestly, browsing this website, this place looks really dreamy, and I'm not going to lie, it kind of makes me want to pick up and move to Albuquerque. So go check it out and learn more about how Cohousing ABQ can become your village. That's cohousingabq.org slash the double shift. It's also linked in our show notes. Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine. I am so glad you're enjoying our rich back catalog of episodes. And as you may know, we aren't putting out new episodes right now, but we're doing some really cool work we want you to know about. And we'd like to stay in touch with you. Please sign up for our weekly newsletter, which is full of great storytelling and ideas about the forces that shape family life in America. To sign up, go to thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. Also, we have a robust member community that's full of amazing moms from all over the world with Zoom hangouts on super interesting topics like creativity and challenging the status quo at work. We are building more and more ways for you all to get to know and support each other. That's just so important right now. We're also planning some great member benefits like audio newsletters. So if you particularly like connecting with us through listening, it's a great way to keep double shift thinking in your ears and in your life. Also, we are a scrappy small business and your support helps us do what we do. Thoughtful journalism that tells important stories and challenges the status quo of motherhood and beyond. To become a member, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. So remember, sign up for our free newsletter so we can stay in touch with you. It's thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. And consider becoming a member. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. Membership starts at $5 a month. Thanks. We're back with Jenna Mason, who is facing a host of challenges. She lost income due to the pandemic. She could no longer afford her antidepressants, which had a direct impact on her job performance, which led her to lose her restaurant jobs, and she couldn't get unemployment after that loss. All of this had a huge impact on her feeling of self-worth. Here's Catherine asking her about that. In an email that you sent us a while ago, you, you wrote a line that really stuck out to me, and you were talking about this, you know, this needing to ask friends and family for help. And you wrote, it's so much easier to help others than to need the help over and over again. Can you yes. tell me a little bit about that line and, and how that's playing out for you right now? Mm-hmm. Um, so 
I grew up with a, a pretty strong Christian background. And, you know, there's a Bible verse that says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I always thought that meant like, you're a good person if you give, you know, this is a way to be a good person is to think about how you can give and not what you can get from other people. And now I really have a totally different understanding of that Bible verse. It's, it's, it feels good to help other people. And it feels awful <laughs> to have them help you. And not just once, but the repeated, like going back, because I had started having to ask for help when I had a broken knee. I couldn't drive anywhere and the financial side of that. And so I thought when my knee was better, that was going to like, okay, then we'll be back to helping other people. <laughs> and, and so it just got, it gets really exhausting. And, you know, I, it sounds almost crass, but like the past few times I've needed help, I like go through like, well, I've already asked that person for money and I've already asked that person. And I definitely don't want to ask this person again because they helped me so much the last time. And you're thinking like, who else can I ask <laughs> that I'm close enough with to be that vulnerable? And I, I think too, it's a lot of worry about how others are going to perceive me, you know, is this the person that's just, you know, always looking for a handout? And I know my friends and family don't see me that way, but it doesn't really alleviate, like knowing that doesn't make me not terrified of that. You know what I mean? Right. So sort of what the stories you are worried they're, they're thinking about you or that you're thinking about yourself mm -hmm. sounds like that's really hard do you have a sense, like, how much money have you had to ask to borrow from people? Do you keep a running tab in your mind, or do you sort I of, do. does it feel like it's weighing on you? Yeah. Um, let me add it up real quick. <laughs> and, oh gosh, it's so much. I've probably close to four or $5,000 over 2020. And a lot of that was, here, take this. You don't need to pay me back. No one has ever come back and been like, hey, when are you going to pay me back? But I, you know, as soon as I think I have an extra $100, I'm like, here's the first hundred of what I owe you. Because I want them to know I meant it when I say I'm going to pay you back sometime, right. you know? Right. They I, I would guess around four or $5,000. Um, a lot of that chunk was recently in December because I, uh, this is hard to even say out loud. I got evicted from my house that I was renting. I had always paid rent throughout 2020, even if it was like a few days late or piecemeal. But in November, I just had paid maybe half of it by the end of November and came home on December fifth to find an eviction letter on my door. And just the cost of moving out was mm. extraordinary. Thankfully, like I have a, a friend that I'm staying with right now in his spare room, which it doesn't even factor into that four or $5,000. He's like, you can stay here for free. <laughs> 
So for some additional context, while there's been a lot of talk about eviction and foreclosure moratoriums in the news, along with suspending the shutoff of utilities, that just isn't the reality for a lot of people, including Jenna. It's because there are a lot of loopholes in these protections. And in Mississippi, which has the highest poverty rate of any state in the country, the evictions continued. And the rules against shutting off utilities expired back in May. So, despite being only half a month behind on her rent and telling her landlord at the end of November that she would pay what she owed and move out in January, Jenna was served an eviction notice. And my son actually was the one to walk up to the door and find it. I wouldn't have let them see it. I would have just been like, oh, we're going to go ahead and move, you know? Yeah. But that was, it really felt like it was out of left field. Yeah. That sounds like such a devastating moment to sort of walk up with your kids and see the eviction notice. It was on a Saturday and they gave me three days to get out. And like, you can't do anything on Sunday. (laughs) You know? Wow. So, so they so they gave you, for half a month's rent, they gave you three days' notice to move out. Mm-hmm. That sounds sort of like a rock-bottom moment. Was that, would you describe that as a rock-bottom moment, or have there been other sort of rock-bottom moments during this time? Um, that is the, that is the rock-bottom moment, having to call my ex-husband. I don't don't think I ever specifically told him, and he lives here in town too, when we share custody 50-50. I don't think I specifically told him I was being evicted, but I told him that we were moving a month earlier than I planned and could he keep the kids until I found a place. And so since December 6th, uh, my kids have been with him 100% of the time. Wow. And I'll, you know, bring them over to where I'm staying and have pizza or watch a movie or something, but I have to take them back because there's nowhere for them to sleep here. So that's definitely rock bottom. Wow. That must be um, really painful to also, like, not only sort of have your home immediately ripped from you, but also, like, the stability and your routines with your kids. Yeah. And they, you know... Have been having a rough, they had a rough year too with all the yeah. anxiety. Like they're old enough to really understand what's going on. I'm sorry. It's okay. I'm feeling, and my kids and I are very close. I know they talk to me a lot more than they talk to their dad. Yeah. As far as emotional stuff. So um, I feel like I'm not able to be there the way that I want and need to be. Right. So even though you're you're able to see them, it, it's not it's just not the same as spending fifty percent of their time with you. Right. November was so hard, and then I went into December being like, "This is going to suck." <laughs> like I know this month is going to suck, but we're going to do all the Christmas stuff. We're going to bake all the cookies and go to all the Christmas movies at the drive-in and like do the hot chocolate and like we have a whole bunch of like silly little traditions that we do, and we didn't get to do any of those. Honestly, I think not having to pay rent in December and January has been a blessing because I'm I'm able to at least, you know, start saving up for a deposit on a new place. 
I have some time to find something that'll work. And, you know, another thing has been, I'm starting to look at all of this as, as an opportunity. I know that sounds really trite and I don't believe it half the time, but um, it, it kind of a kick in the butt to be like, look, you didn't plan to spend the rest of your life working in restaurants. You were planning to write and planning to do, you know, this and that. And so I've been applying for jobs and doing some more writing and had some time to really like sit with myself and think about picking a direction and making something work. Do you have any other stories of sort of like how people have shown up for you during this time? Oh, yeah. Um, I, at the end of June, woke up. It, it was just a really bad panic attack, like sort of like a breaking point. And I called two of my friends. and They came over immediately and sat with me, helped me calm down. And um, and then I, I called my dad, who lives in uh, Northern Virginia. And I was just like, I'm not okay. Can I come stay with you for a week? And he was like, I have been waiting for you to call. I was just telling your stepmother last night, like, I might have to go down there and kick her butt because she, like, I know she needs help. She's not answering her phone. And so I went and stayed with my dad for a week and just kind of like took a break, read a book, you know. It's been little things like that that, like, they don't fix everything. But the reminder of how much people care about me and want me to be okay, want me to do well. I have, like, more amazing friends than one person should be allowed to have. <laughs> so even in in December when I was having to move, the number of people that came and helped me load and unload and box up stuff. Um, and none of us are like spring chickens anymore. So it's like that person's got a bad shoulder, but they're still helping me load the truck, you know, or that guy busted out his knee three years ago, but he's still helping move this couch, you know. Just knowing that people really genuinely care and will go to great lengths for each other. Um, that when I think about it, just, I can't help but feel positive and thankful. I have really been struck by Jenna's resilience in telling her story, Um, but she's also reflected on how hard this time has been for her kids, and also the way she's had to watch them grow up. When we got evicted, my son, he's 13, and this was so, like, poignant for me. He's like, you know, Mom, maybe this is a good thing. Maybe we can look at this as a new start in a new house. I'm like, yeah, I like it. <laughs> so. Well, it, it's like he has sort of the wisdom to also, like, try to help you and be comforting to you. Yeah, yeah. which is, it makes me very proud of him. It also is it's very uncomfortable, right? Because right. you're like, I'm supposed to be taking care of them. I don't want right. them worrying about me. Right. But I'm glad they know how to worry about someone. <laughs> so. right. See you tomorrow. Yep. Night. Love you. Night. Love you too. You too. You too. Bye. 
So since we recorded this interview with Jenna Mason in early January, she has updated us a bit on how things are going for her. So after that eviction notice, because she was no longer paying rent, she was actually able to afford her medications again, which has been huge in helping her mental health. In terms of her living situation, she was having a hard time finding her own place to rent because of having a low credit score. So the friend she was staying with offered to make her an official roommate. So she's now paying her friend rent. But Jenna says this is actually a huge relief for her because she now feels much more at home there rather than just like this extended house guest. There isn't a place for her kids to sleep over at this friend's house, but she does still see them about four days a week. She continues to do part-time work at the same nonprofit, and she's pursuing some other job leads and has recently gotten some writing assignments from a local magazine. So, Angela, what did you think of Jenna's story? um, You know... What really sticks with me the most about Jenna's story is just how bad our social safety net is yep. in this country. Yep. Um, you know, it's really, there's no no government help that's been sufficient, right? Like, it's really her informal networks, her relationships with friends and family. Um, that's the only way the last year has been remotely survivable for her. Like, her kid's dad being able to take the kids full-time and being able to stay at her friend's house. I mean, that's the first time in months that Jenna didn't have to choose between paying rent and paying for medication. Yeah. Like, in America, we rely, we over-rely on charity and philanthropy. And, like, helping people out is great by, like, donating, right? But really, what if we just provided basic needs for people? I mean, people need each other, and we should definitely be able to rely on our community for help without any shame. But, you know, people shouldn't have to suffer unnecessarily in the first place. I think the unnecessary suffering in Jenna's story is really what haunts me about this. Yeah. It didn't have to be like this. It didn't have to be like this for so many moms like Jenna. Yeah. Just a reminder for Double Shift members, the show is now weekly and ad-free. Don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member and download your ad-free and bonus content feed. So our member episodes are more conversational and informal. And next week, listeners will be getting a conversation between me and Angela about pandemic milestones. But in two weeks, we'll be back with an episode for everyone that features more important, fascinating stories that put a real face on the cost of the pandemic for moms. We aren't going to shut up about this, and you won't want to miss this episode. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Catherine Goldstein. Our co-host is Angela Garbez. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. We are also produced by Asal Asaniport. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our research assistant is Jada Hester. Music is by Travis Morrison and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme song is by Palehound. Our mixer is Corey Schreffel. Our advisory board includes Amy Henderson, Eric Newsom, Eve Rodsky, and Lauren Smith-Brody. 
Special thanks to WTVA 9 News for the use of archival audio. We are funded in part by the generous support of the Ford Foundation and you, our members. We can't do this without you. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and distributed. Thanks for being part of The Double Shift.